Good morning. It's a joy to be with you on this third Sunday of Advent in such a beautifully decorated sanctuary with all the greenery of the season. Thank you to our Floral Guild and all those who helped beautify this place. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke 2. We'll read verses 36 through 38 this morning. We are continuing our Advent series this morning entitled, All is Calm Even When All is Not Bright. The series reminds us that in the midst of our Advent celebration, that there is often internal discord. There's a disconnect between the joy of the season and the joy that we know that we're supposed to have in our hearts. We often struggle with nagging doubts and unrelenting shame of heartbreaking loneliness and gripping fear. Like a Grinch, these emotions tend to rob us of joy, even undermining our faith. We struggle to know the hope of Christmas. It is into this struggle, though, that the Lord Jesus has come into. He came not simply to identify with our struggles. No, He came to do something about those struggles. We've already seen what the birth of Jesus meant for the doubt that Zechariah and Elizabeth experienced with their miraculous pregnancy. We've already seen what shame means having the birth of Jesus come such a scandalous way through Mary. And this morning we'll see what the birth of Jesus actually means for us in our loneliness as we consider the widowhood of Anna. I suppose if there's a difficult emotion that we often experience at this time of the year, it probably would be loneliness. Whether it's a loneliness caused by a loss or separation, we feel it especially in the holidays. It tends to color everything that we think, we feel, even what we do. Knowing that, then how does the birth of Jesus speak into our loneliness? What does this Advent mean for our loneliness? For that, let's turn to our text this morning, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's stop there. Let's pray together. Father, we know that Your word is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. So would you, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts that we might see the truth of your word, that we might anchor our lives upon the hope that is found here, an eternal hope that is secure in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. August 15th, 1991 was simultaneously the best day and worst day of my life up until that point. It was the best day because I finally moved out of the college dorm after graduation and into an apartment. After sharing a dorm room with roommates for four years, and I know some of my college friends knows what that's like, I no longer had to have a roommate. I could set up my house with all of my stuff exactly the way I wanted it. I no longer had to share refrigerator space or closet space or wall space or bathroom space. I didn't have to bother with roommates ever again. Roommates who got up too early or went to bed too late. I was free to live on my own. 
And yet it didn't take long for me to begin to experience something I had never felt before. I began to be lonely. While I was grateful for my own space, I missed the ease of hanging out with my college friends. I could always count on Keith to play midnight basketball. I could count on Scott for road trips. I could count on Stacy for pickup football games. I could count on Clay and Chad and Tony for card games. I even could count on some friends to help me with my homework, but not that many. (laughs) But not anymore. All of my friends, of course, had moved away to go to work somewhere or to go to grad school. I found myself longing for dorm life, for the cramped spaces that we did life together. You see, to be without friends began to feel like I was being deprived of air. It's easy to look back on that day as being the worst day because it began a period of about a year of incredible loneliness. It's right for us to grieve loneliness. We weren't made to be alone. Even before the fall, when Adam was with God, it was God, not Adam, who who declared in Genesis 2.18, it isn't good that the man should be alone. The man needed a creature who was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, not just a creature that was physically similar, but one that was relationally similar. You see, as image bearers of God, we were made for relationship. We can see that in the Godhead, can't we? They mutually served and cared for and loved one another. And yet because of the fall, however, man's relationships became cursed. There was alienation and separation, which resulted in loneliness. But it wasn't because they were alone. They weren't. But they were lonely in their relationship. They grieved the loss of relational wholeness and relational connectedness that had been fatally severed. Things were no longer the way that they were supposed to be. Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. I think it's quite possible that when we feel ashamed, uh, that when we feel lonely, we can feel ashamed of that loneliness. To talk about our loneliness can make us feel like there's something wrong with us or maybe makes us feel weak or needy. Dr. Jacqueline Olds writes in her book, The Lonely American, that talking about loneliness in America is deeply stigmatized. We see ourselves as a self-reliant people who do not whine about neediness. If a person is going to complain, far better to complain about what someone has done to him or what diagnoses and addictions he was saddled with. But to wistfully describe how lonely he feels is simply not socially acceptable. Dr. Oles and her colleagues noted a startling finding in their patients. They realized that their patients were more comfortable admitting that they were depressed than they were lonely. It was easier for them to say that they were depressed than for them to say that they were actually lonely. And they concluded that while our American culture has successfully destigmatized mental illness, at least a little, it has restigmatized an ordinary human emotion. Do you have a hard time admitting that you feel lonely? Do you feel like there is something wrong with you for somehow feeling lonely? I want you to know that loneliness is an indication not that there's something wrong with you, but that there's something right with you. It means that you love life dearly, which means you feel the loss of it keenly. Loneliness is an ache. It's a longing for something that we were created to enjoy. 
as we grieve loneliness, we tend to experience it, I think, one of two ways. There is the loneliness that we choose, and there is the loneliness that chooses us through circumstances. The loneliness that I experienced after college, I unwittingly chose for myself. I exchanged the cramped and loud dorm space for privacy. I retreated from the hassle of relationships to the freedom of solitude. I wanted to live my life without having to consider anyone else, much less interact with anyone else. My guess is a lot of you engineering types experience this kind of loneliness, only you may not realize it. We suffer from what I call relational dehydration. In this phenomenon, we deprive our souls of needed refreshment that is found in relationships. What's more, we don't often recognize the warning signs until we're deeply lonely. Even if we do recognize those signs, we can substitute them with pseudo-relationships. These pseudo-relationships offer closeness, yet they fail to deliver. Whether it's something as benign as social media like Facebook or something more harmful like internet pornography, they fail to nourish our souls. They're counterfeits. But maybe it's not the hassle of relationships that you avoid. Maybe it's the hurt in relationships that you avoid. You seek to protect yourself from the hurt of being let down again, the hurt of maybe being rejected, from the hurt of losing someone that you love. And you vow never to be hurt again as you lock your heart away. C.S. Lewis wrote of this kind of self-protection in his book, The Four Loves, and he wrote this. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. You love anything, and your heart will certainly be squeezed and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You see, whether we avoid the hassle or the hurt of relationships, something tragic happens. The more we seek privacy and control and isolation, the more alienated and lonely we will feel when we finally get it. But we don't always choose our loneliness, do we? Sometimes it chooses us. Through circumstances beyond our control, we can experience loneliness. It may be through the loss of someone cherished. It may come from being separated from someone that you love. As a widow, we can imagine that Anna experienced some kind of loneliness. Married as a young woman in her teens, she became a widow only seven years later. As is the case today, Anna would certainly have thought she would have outlived her husband, but no one would have thought that it would have been by 84 years. In those seven years, we can imagine they would have made a life together. They had celebrated joyous occasions, mourned losses together, weathered conflicts. They likely had made plans together, possibly to start a business or to travel or to start a family. But those plans were never fully realized. His death meant the death of their dreams and life together. It is somewhat surprising that she didn't remarry given her young age. Often because of dowries, young brides in that culture would look to remarry in a husband's family. If one brother died, then his wife would look to marry another brother. That wasn't the case here. It's possible her husband had no other male relative 
to marry. But it's also possible she chose not to remarry because she didn't want to experience that loss again. Whatever the reason, she didn't remarry, which also meant that she wouldn't have children. For a woman in that culture, that was a double blow. I'm guessing that some of you have been where Anna was, and perhaps you're there even now. You feel the weight of loneliness that has chosen you through loss, separation, and rejection. And yet still others of you feel the weight of loneliness that you have chosen. You've become relationally dehydrated, having deprived yourself of needed relationships. Others of you are lonely because you are hurt in a relationship, and now you keep people at a distance. So what are we to do with our loneliness? How do we grieve it so that we're not consumed by it? I think the text would tell us that we are to redeploy our loneliness. Commentators aren't real sure how Anna, how old Anna was when she met Mary and Joseph. She was either an 84-year-old widow or she had been widowed for 84 years. What is clear is that she had been widowed much longer than she had been married. As Luke's primary source for the birth narrative, Mary remembered everything. Like a scribe, she had carefully taken mental snapshots. She captured all the events surrounding her conception, her pregnancy, her birth, and even Jesus' first years. Each of those events were like valuable treasures that she hid in her mind and her heart. Whenever she wanted to think about them, she would unearth them and ponder them. Thank you, dear. Okay, that is a small cup. I hope that will last. Thank you. No, you're good. No, you're good. That sounded ungrateful, didn't it? I'm so sorry. That was... Thank you. (laughs) Yes, pastors are also ungrateful at times as well. I've actually wondered, what was it that impressed Mary about Anna? What was it that made her want to include her in her story? Well, it it could have been her lifelong devotion to the Lord. That would have been very attractive to Mary. It could have been that she was one of the only prophetesses ever recorded in the Scripture. It could have been her life as a widow for 84 years. That must have been amazing for her to consider. It could have been the pronouncement that she made to all that Jesus would mean the uh, the, uh, redemption of Jerusalem. I think any and all of these answers are very likely. But I think what attracts me to Anna's life was what she did with her loneliness so many years ago. Rather than immediately jump into another relationship, rather than avoid people who were oblivious to her pain, rather than trying to numb her pain with a pseudo-relationship, she looked to God and to her spiritual family to embrace her. Look back at verse 37. Luke tells us that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, some commentators actually believe that Anna lived on the temple grounds, uh, something like a monastic order. That may be possible, but what is really probably more likely is that she simply spent a lot of time at the temple. We might phrase it this way. Every time the doors of the temple were open, she could be found there worshiping God with his people. And as she worshiped, she offered of God, of course, praise and thanksgiving for who he was. But she also, I'm sure, offered her loneliness and her sadness. She would have offered her frustrations and hurts. Why? 
because in taking them to the Lord, she knew that He cared for those things. And what's more, she knew that He could do something about them. Please don't ever think that when you come to worship here, that you must check those things at the door. Please don't think that your loneliness or your sadness or your hurt or your frustrations have no place here. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Just look at Israel's hymn book, the Psalms. Did you know that the most common type of psalm is a lament? Does that surprise you? It it did me. Israel's hymn book didn't just include psalms of lament. There were more of those than any other type. Why did they lament? They lamented the sorrows of life, the reality of living in a world cursed by sin. They did that because they knew God would hear, that He would care, and He he would act. Their hymn book also included imprecatory psalms. These were psalms that called God to defeat injustice and evil, to bring judgment on their oppressors, sometimes even asking God to wipe their enemies off the face of the earth. Can you imagine singing songs like that? here? You would if it was a regular part of your life. Let's also not forget the Psalms of Confession they sung about in individual and corporate sin. They mourned the wasteland of sin that wreaked havoc in the heart, in the family, even in the kingdom. What is it that they knew that we sometimes forget? It's that God is not looking for the right form of worship. Rather, He's looking for a right heart of worship. Not the one who thinks he has to have his life all together before he can worship. But the one who knows that his life is held together by the grace of God with whom he worships. See, I'm glad you got this. I knew I was going to need it. Anna knew that and she gave herself to a worshiping community who knew that as well. She surrounded herself with fellow believers in the temple who were her spiritual family. She would have invested in relationships and given herself away. She worshipped with those who also were lonely and who were grieving and they supported one another. She worshipped with those who were grieving and they supported each other. That's the kind of community God intends for us to have as a church. Let me just share some of the ways that I see that happening here at Rivermont. I'm so grateful for the two new community support groups that we just started this year. We started a a grief share group earlier this year for folks struggling with the loss of a loved one, be it a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. We also started a single and parenting group this fall for single parents looking for help and encouragement as a solo parent. Several of you have been in those groups and you've commented on how meaningful those groups were to know that you weren't alone to know that there was help and support for moving forward. Lord willing, both of those groups will start back uh, once uh, RFN begins in January. And if you'd like more information about being in these groups, uh, please contact the church office. But we also have life groups, which are small groups that meet throughout the week in member homes. Some are comprised of those who are in the same stage of life, like the one that I'm in. Or others are intergenerational. We believe these groups are the lifeblood of our relational connection. They provide much-needed encouragement, accountability, and growth. And if you're not in a group but you'd like to be, then stop by the welcome table. There are forms that you can fill out, and we'll be happy to get you in a group. One final group I'd like to mention is our 20s community group. 
In the past, many of our 20-somethings moved away after graduation. And if I were to pull the congregation of those of you who grew up in this church or grew up in Lynchburg, my guess is that you went away and then moved back after you got married and had your first child. Now, thankfully, I think that's been changing as of late. More and more of our 20-somethings are staying in town or moving back home. As I've heard from some of those 20-somethings, they also have experienced some of the loneliness that I experienced at their age. Our message to them isn't get married so that you won't be lonely again. Our message is that they should give themselves to the many relationships that God has blessed them with here in this church community. A good friend of mine wrote an article entitled Singled Out for Good. I referenced it once before. When she wrote the article, she was single and in her late 30s. She wrote about an experience she had with a young matron in her home church. She asked my friend somewhat patronizingly, are you seeing anyone special? My friend picked up on that and she quipped back, sure, I see you and you're special. (laughs) She confessed it wasn't very kind, but the message was true nonetheless. She went on to write to her fellow singles in this article, to be single is not to be alone. If someone asks if you are in a relationship right now, your immediate response should be that you are in dozens. Our range of relational options is not limited to getting married. Christian growth mandates relational richness. The only time folks talk about human covenants is in premarital counseling. How anemic. If our God is a covenantal God, then all of our relationships are covenantal. The gospel is not about how much I love God. She says I typically love Him very little. It is about how much God loves me. My relationships are not about how much friends should love me. They are about how much I get to love them. No single should ever expect relational impoverishment by virtue virtue of being single. We should covenant to love people, to initiate, to serve, to commit. What my friend was saying in this article is that, that God has called us to redeploy any loneliness that we might feel to those who are around us, to give ourselves to the relationships that God has placed us in, in this church family. Now, Anna grieved her loneliness, to be sure, but she redeployed it by embracing her spiritual family, by investing her time, her energy, her life into relationships that she could offer mutual support and help. Are you actively giving yourself to those kinds of relationships? Are you redeploying your loneliness so that you can be both encourager and the one encouraged? So that you can be both helper and the one helped? As that happens, God begins to do something beautiful and attractive in your life. He begins to reveal a taste of what is to come. And what is it that comes? It is that God redeems our loneliness. God had revealed to Anna, as he had to Simeon just a few verses earlier, Jesus' true identity and mission. While Simeon shared that truth with Mary and Joseph a, a few verses earlier, Anna shared it with everyone in the temple who would listen, who was waiting for the redemption. Luke tells us in verse 38 that she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, given the nature of this good news, it's... Well, frankly, it's no wonder she told everyone. You don't keep good news like that a secret. In fact, we are hardwired to share good news. 
Our enjoyment of something is heightened when we can share that with something else. When they are able to share in our joy, our joy is made complete. It's made full. I remember going to the Apple store when I bought my first Apple computer seven years ago. A young saleswoman, who I like to call evangelist, uh, approached me and she asked me how she could help me. I told her I was interested in buying a MacBook Pro. And for the next 30 minutes, she tried to convince me how this computer would change my life. She showed me everything this computer could do to make my life worth living. (laughs) She was out to make a convert. Why? Because she knew the joy of owning a MacBook Pro. And what's more, she wanted me to experience that same joy. She had good news that she wanted to share with me. And in the end, she made a convert and a sale. Now the truth is, we do the same thing, whether it's with movies or restaurants or vacation spots or books, you name it. We are hardwired to share good news. Why? Because our joy is made complete when we make a convert. When someone can share our joy, we feel joy full. Now, Anna was full of joy as she announced the redemption of Jerusalem. And that phrase, the redemption of Jerusalem, had certain messianic implications. The one for whom the fathers of old had been waiting for, going all the way back to Adam, had come. The Messiah was bringing God's salvation, and it would come through the life of the infant that Mary was holding in her arms. Had Anna been blessed with Charles Wesley's writing gift, she might have penned the words to this beloved song, which we'll sing in a moment. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Jesus was born so that through his sinless life, he might one day take the punishment our life of sin deserved and he would give his life to us. But you see, friends, Jesus didn't just redeem us from our sin. He also came to redeem us from our loneliness too. Jesus experienced divine separation and loneliness. A separation and loneliness that we deserved. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross so that we would never be forsaken by God? He was alienated by God for our sin so that we might be brought into the rest and peace and fellowship with God. Through His death and resurrection, Jesus has defeated the enemies of our loneliness, sin and death. He has put away the heartache and heartbreak of separation so that we who die and live in Him will never know loneliness again. We will know and be known as we have never been known before. We will have unhindered, unbroken fellowship with one another. This promise is sure. Are you here this morning and you're grieving your loneliness this holiday season? Do you feel the pain of separation? My friends, know that you are not alone in your grief. Know that you don't have to face your loneliness alone. God wants to redeploy your loneliness so that you can experience the encouragement and support of this church family. He wants you to give yourself to Him and to each other that He might reveal His love through you. 
What's more, God wants you to know that your loneliness is only temporary. Because Jesus has defeated the enemy of our loneliness, we have an eternal hope. A hope that is anchored in the new heavens and the new earth where loneliness and shame and doubt and fear are no more. Where we will be forever known and cherished by God never to be separated again. Joy to the world. The Lord has indeed come. Let earth receive her King, her Redeemer, her Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given to us a complete salvation, taking away not only the stain and guilt of our sin, but the consequences of it. And Lord, we do long for the day when our loneliness will be a thing of the past and we will know those that we love and cherish perfectly, without fault, without conflict. Lord, hasten that day when You come, when we can enjoy that. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.